Great. All right, if you have a Bible with you, do you want to open it to the book of Nehemiah? Nehemiah is in the Old Testament. Is um, a book or two before the Psalms, and uh, just after Ezra and Chronicles and those guys. So, one, two, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. We're starting a new series today, this Sunday, and um, we're just finally deciding on a name for it. Um, we'll be working through the book of Nehemiah between now and the end of November, and then December, God willing, we'll focus on Advent and build up, build up to the Christmas celebration. So, um, yeah, so the book of Nehemiah, I don't know whether you've noticed this in the Bible, but um, in the story that we have in the Bible, it starts in the garden... And it ends in a city. I don't know whether you've ever observed that. One of the first things that happens in Genesis is that the Lord puts the, the man whom he's made and formed into a garden to look after it, to cultivate it, and then obviously makes it, um, creates the woman, and together they are to go about the work of cultivating the garden. And then at the end in the, in, of the Bible, we see this great city, which we'll read about in a moment, which comes down from heaven. And so we move from a garden to a city. It's important to understand, I think, Sometimes we, I don't know whether it's, just, whether it's just my observations, but people can look upon cities in a negative way. They can be seen negative. They can be seen as, you know, I don't know cities are bad, meadows are good, you know, and, 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 and heaven's going to be just a, one meadow after another, you know, and not a building in sight. It'll be like the Shire, you know, and we'll all dig our homes out of the ground. And I mean, you know, I, I do like the Shire, but um, I don't, that's not actually, it's not a biblical idea particularly, um, cities are not seen in this negative way uh, in the Bible. Really, the, I think there's an observation that, is that cities are really a concentration of people, and so you get a concentration of two things. You get a concentration of sin, because people are sinners, the Bible teaches, that we, we uh, in our hearts, have been not just sort of legally separated from God by our sin, by our wrongdoing, but we're diseased by sin. So that we desire things that... Um, let alone would we would be ashamed if other people knew we even feel ashamed about ourselves. Um, we find in our desires and uh, our natural desires, we don't want to submit to God and his law. We want to do our own thing. Um, we find that we re- naturally revolve around ourselves and our, our lusts and desires can drive us to do things or to want to do things that are shocking. And so when you get a concentration of people, you get a concentration of that. You get a concentration of sin. You get more wickedness than normal. You get more depravity and, per- and perversity than normal. It's what you get. But not only that, you also get a concentration of the image of God. Because people are made in the image of God. And so in cities you get a concentration of creativity. You get, you get a, concent- a concentration of beauty. You get a concentration of culture. You get a concentration of ideas. You get a concentration of life. You get, because people are made in the image of God. And so this, this, really what cities are are a concentration of both. Which is why sometimes you can walk around the city, for example, of London, and be uh, overjoyed. Uh, things that you see and come across and experience. Other times you can go home and hold your head in your hands because you can't believe what you've just seen or what you've just experienced. And um, that's really what cities are. Now, throughout the Old Testament, Jerusalem was the celebrated city. It was the big, uh, significant city. It was the city of God. Here's the name of today's message, the city of God. And it was celebrated for two things. Mainly, number one, there was the palace there, and so the king, who represented God's government, was, was located there. But most importantly, the temple was there. It was the place of God's 
dwelling presence. It was the place where, you know, if you wanted to encounter God or, or you wanted to go up to worship, you would make your pilgrimage to Jerusalem. It was a place where God had chosen for his dwelling. You'll find psalm after psalm celebrating Jerusalem and another term often used, Zion, which was the name of a particular mountain upon which um, Jerusalem was a part of. And not, but often Zion is used to just describe the whole city, the city of God. And it's celebrated and delighted in and sung about and... Um, uh, it, it's a significant place, particularly in the Old Testament. Throughout the New Testament, the focus shifts. It moves. It moves clearly from the earthly Jerusalem where Jesus was rejected, where actually God came to his city and was crucified. God came to his dwelling place and was killed. And we see this shift away from the earthly Jerusalem towards the heavenly Jerusalem until right towards the end the apostle John in the book of Revelation says this I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband it's this city bride it's a strange terminology you think a city why would you describe a city as a bride and uh, what you what what develops throughout the new testament is this new city you find that actually the what god has to do with the apostles and with the and with his people is actually break them out of a of a, a very parochial mentality jerusalem and judea he breaks them out to the nations and um, that's the whole trajectory of the new testament and it's because it's toward it's the nations now it's not about being overly concerned with this plot of land it's the nations go and make disciples of all nations that's the focus clearly of the Old Testament. You don't find the early Christians holding on to their land. Well, it's, it's, it's the special land. You find them selling their land to give to the poor and share with the poor. You see, the focus is it moves from that particular Middle Eastern plot to the nations. Everything's enlarged in Christ, in the revelation of Christ. And so you begin to realize, well, what is, what is the city of God then? It's no longer just one particular city on earth. What is it? Well, it's this city bride, it's the church. The church is the city of God. And so you find yourself, you could describe what we're doing at Revelation Church as, as, as working with Jesus, building a city within a city. We live in the city of London, but we're looking to build the city of God within the city of London. And that's quite an intriguing idea if you think about it. The hope is that this city, God's, God's church, will shine with such glory that London will wake up. And at this point, I'm obviously referring not to just Revelation Church, but to every gospel-declaring, Bible-believing church in this city will shine with the glory of Christ so that the city suddenly realises there's something glorious going on here, something of utter authenticity and life-giving power that's going on here. It's the presence of God. God is dwelling in his city. And so this series on Nehemiah, which is really the story of a man who returns to, his, to the city of Jerusalem to rebuild it, it's the story, it's the story in the series, if you like, on the church, the city of God. We'll be marking our victories, looking at what God has done, but we'll also be meditating on promises, looking at what has God spoken to us in the Bible about the church, and also prophetically, what have we got? What are we armed with as we go about this incredible work of co-laboring with Jesus as he builds his church? Now, I want to, before I go any further, I want to just say that if you're here as a Christian and you don't like the church, or you're disinterested in the church, or you're negative about the church, I want to give you three reasons why you're crazy. Okay? Three reasons why you're crazy. No, reason number one, you are the church, so you hate yourself. You, you are disinterested in yourself. You're not fussed about yourself. I mean, that's, that's, that doesn't make sense. 
When you become a Christian, you become the church. God, God make, God, you're described in the Bible as a living stone that's going to be built together with other living stones into a mighty dwelling place of God. This is why it's, it's okay to come into a school hall and expect to meet with the presence of God. Because it's not about a building anymore, it's about living stones. Those who have been made new, those who are now indwelt with the presence of Jesus, who join together, glue together in love, and together become a dwelling place for God. You see, so you are the church. And so you, if, if you're understanding of yourself, simply, no, I've just kind of followed Jesus. You've, you've got a truncated and incomplete understanding of who you are. Reason number one. Reason number two, you're resisting God. It's God's plan to make you like Jesus. Jesus loves the church. In fact, the Bible describes Jesus as being consumed with zeal for God's house. He's burning up with zeal. He went into the temple, which then represented God's dwelling place, and turns over those tables and drives them out. They say, on what authority do you do this? And then he's saying, God says, my house will be a house of prayer. You made it a house of robbers. And the disciples look around thinking, goodness me. And this is when they were reminded of the scripture that says, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus is eaten up with zeal for the church. Part of you being made into the image of Christ is that you will be eaten up with zeal for God's house. You'll carry God's house in your heart. That you don't somehow siphon yourself off and see yourself as somewhat separate and spectate on the church and critique it and make your comments about why the church isn't quite this or isn't quite that. But you come in and bring your own flaws (laughs) as well as your own gifts and get involved. That's the Christian life. And the third reason why you're crazy if you don't care about the church is this. You're not walking by faith. You're walking by sight. You're simply looking with the eyes of the flesh at what things aren't quite right or where this person went wrong or whatever and you're assessing what this is there for the church. No, no, no. We understand what the church is by the book. This is our plumb line. And everything else we build, this is the plumb line. This is how we're going about it. It's messy. (laughs) Things go wrong. Mistakes are made. But we walk by faith. So we just keep coming back. Okay, if we got it wrong, we'll straighten up again. Okay, so we've got to walk by faith and not by sight. Two reasons why if you're here today and you're not a believer, or you're not sure where you're at, you're here because you're seeking, you're looking to find out more about Jesus. Two reasons why this whole series on the church is really, really important for you is this. Firstly, to know Jesus, if you're thinking about coming to know Jesus, is to become part of the church. So you're doing important research. If you're thinking about following Christ, this is what you're going to be a part of. This is what you're going to be caught up in. It's not just you and Jesus, you're caught up in the mission of God. God is about something incredible and awesome, and he wants to include you in that. So it's very important research for you. Secondly, the true Jesus is impossible to understand outside of the church. This is quite sublime. You can't understand Jesus if you don't get the church, and here's why. You know, when you get married, what you do, among a lot of other things, is this you make yourself voluntarily incomplete without your partner. So before I was married, I was complete. Single people are complete people. But now that I'm married, I'm no longer complete without Davina. We are one. I've made myself voluntarily incomplete without her and vice versa. Jesus has done the same. Oh my goodness. He refuses to run ahead of the church. For the last 2,000 years, he was born with her through some very difficult seasons and centuries and born with her and born with her and has not given up on her. Why? Because he has made himself voluntarily incomplete without her. 
it's, it, 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 the language that is used, it, it's shocking that we are the body of Christ. That he has chosen to express himself through us. The hands and feet of Jesus. It's just incredible. And so you can't understand Jesus without the church. And if you try to, he will want to take you on the shoulder and say, you've only got half of me. I want you to see my bride. Because we're going to be together forever. I am committed to her. I am devoted to her. We are together forever. This is the one I've chosen. So this thing is central. This thing is huge. I thank God that the church I was saved into understood this and taught me from day one about the church. I know for many of you that is not your experience. You've just, you, no one's really ever spoken in depth about it, unpacked the Bible. So we're going to do that for these next few weeks and it's going to be thrilling, I think. And you'll find a spark, a very spark of God come alive in your heart. Others of you have been hurt by churches. You've faced spiritual abuse, control, leaders that have gone off the rails, um, communities that have been... Uh, frankly, not life-giving, but suffocating. Um, you've been stitched up. Some of you have been betrayed and backstabbed by the church. And my hope is that God brings healing through this series. You get healed up in your heart. And you dare to, dare to trust again and dare to get involved in the mission of God again, to which the church is central. So that's my hope as we go through this. Um, the book of uh, Nehemiah um, is set around 445 B.C. That's what we're looking at, which is about 140 years after the final destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. There were really three main um, exiles where Jerusalem was uh, uh, hit by the Babylonians. There were three main exiles, the final one being around 586 BC, um, and the place was just razed. The city was literally razed to the ground. It was, it was horrific what went on. I won't go into details, there's no need, but it was, it was, it was bad. And uh, 140 years on, Nehemiah is in Persia. He was exiled to Persia. And we're going to read Nehemiah chapter 1 together. The word should come up. Fantastic. Great. Thank you. Um, The word of Nehemiah, the son of Hecaliah. Now, it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. They said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven and I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we've sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you. We've not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples, but... If you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you're, dis- though you're dispersed be under the farthest skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. 
of the word of God. Father, we thank you for your word. May it live in our hearts today, we pray. May it live in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do some amazing things, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to just, I want to, Nehemiah finds out about Jerusalem and his response is profound. I want to just pull out a few things about his response. Number one, firstly, Nehemiah is interested in Jerusalem. His brother and some others come to where he is and his first question is, tell me about the welfare of Jerusalem. I want to know how Jerusalem's doing. He cared about, he was interested in the city of God. It it took up his interest. Now bear in mind, Nehemiah was very far removed geographically and culturally from the city of God. And even, actually it had been, like I said, over 100 years since the the exile. A a lot of time had gone on. In many ways you would say Nehemiah was very, very distant from the city of God. But he was interested still. He wanted to find out how she fared. He wanted to find out how she was doing. And I know for many of you, it's the same. Many of you, you spend, you spend most of your working days, unlike me, away from the city of God. Culturally, you're totally moved. You're in, another, you're in the city of London, but you're nowhere near the city of God. Maybe for many of you, there may be very few, if any, followers of Jesus that you work with. The way that people talk and think is completely alien from the Bible. For most of you, the vast majority, that is your experience. You're you're removed in that sense from the city of God day to day. And yet so was Nehemiah, but there was this interest still. He was interested. How's the city doing? How's the church doing? And I think I just want to really start, and I know for many of you, this is, is, you're like, yep, tick, next point, because you're so interested in the church. You know, you've got, you understand that the church is at the centre of God's purposes and God will not remove the church from the centre of his purposes. There is no plan B. <laughs> there isn't. So we, we've got to, you know, it's, you've got to roll our sleeves up because there's no plan B. God's not going to just say, oh, blow it. You know, there's nothing else. It's the bride of Christ. And so in that sense, to be interested, to, 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 to let your mind and your heart be engaged with the church of, with the church of God is vitally important. And I want to just ask you, are you interested? And yeah, we, can really, we can really drill it down into some really practical things like, you know, we, 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 do our best, we do our best to keep in touch with our rev news every week. Just keeping you in touch, what's going on, a little, something, a little bit inspirational, some news. Be interested. That's how I was old Steph again, writing his little thing. Be interested. It might not be life-changing every week, but it's, it's important to stay in the loop. I would just encourage you to to show interest in what's going on. To not develop a default of, oh, that's kind of the thing on the side. Well, it's not the thing on the side in God's heart. And if you're a disciple, then you want to get God's heart, so it becomes a central thing. Now, you know the farthest thing I want to go to is that point where we spend all our life in church meetings, all our time with church people. No, 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 no. God has called us to be the light of the world. God has called us to serve and love those who don't know Jesus. God has called us to, God has called us in, in, to be in the world, but not of it, but in it. And so I'm not saying, come on, guys, we just need, we need to fill our lives with church meetings. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying let your heart be interested in the church, in what God's doing in the church. Don't, don't let it be something marginal. But then it goes further, it goes deeper. The next thing is, is that Nehemiah actually cared. He wasn't just interested, there was a deep care, a deep concern that he carries in his heart. I mean, if we look at his response, he wept. I don't know about you, I cried so many times during the Olympics. 
<laughs> it's just me. In the end, I was like, oh, it's just humiliating. You know, I would run out and just put the kettle on because the kids would be like, Dad, you know. Be like, yes, I'm crying again. You know, I just cried so many times. Uh, I did. I cry anything. I'm a real crier. Um, but the thing about it is it's involuntary, isn't it? I wish it wasn't. <laughs> I wish I could just switch it off. It's not like that. But that's the thing about crying, you see. Crying happens when something deep inside, you're moved. Because actually you're affected deeply. And even though sometimes you think this is illogical, I'm watching a cartoon, you know. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I'm watching a cartoon and I'm crying. You know, please kids, don't turn around. You know, because it's, it's, it's ridiculous. But actually, the, something of the theme has touched something deep in me. So I'm crying. Now, it's funny, but there's a point here. Nehemiah cries when he hears about Jerusalem. Why? Because it touches something deep in him. As I'm speaking now, I just feel the Holy Spirit prompting me that some of you, it's like your heart for the church has been cauterized. Because you've been hurt, it's been cauterized. And you're sitting there thinking, "I, I don't have that for the church. Why not? For some of you, it's a word of knowledge. That's what it is. And, and, and you need Jesus to help soften you. Because if the church, if the, if, if the cause of the church is, 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 is waning, if the glory in the church is fading, if the sense of the presence of God in the church is kind of hard to detect, we should be weeping. We should be weeping. Why? Because this is this, to our amazement, is God's dwelling. It's what he's chosen. I don't understand it. I'm not saying I would have chosen it, you know, me to be part of God's dwelling place, but it's what he's chosen. And so Nehemiah wept. He was deeply moved and touched by the cause of the church. He fasted. He fasted. Now you think, well, why did he fast? Why did, why did Nehemiah fast? Well, I'll tell you, there's a funny thing about fasting. Um, the Bible nowhere explains why we fast. People do long seminars on it, but I think oftentimes they're clutching at straws. There are not a lot of long explanations in the Bible as to why we fast. But I think, I think there's probably two, two reasons that are just kind of, I think they make sense. Number one, when you are traumatised, you don't want to eat. When, you, when you've just been upset by something, really upset, the last thing you're thinking about is where's the chocolate cake? And I, you know, okay, hold on, we need to qualify that. Some of you are thinking, that's exactly what I think when I'm upset. <laughs> okay. I guess what I'm talking about here, I do not imagine that most of you, when you hear really, really terrible news and you are blubbing your eyes out, are in that moment thinking, do you know what I mean? Like, I need some chocolate. If you do, we need to pray afterwards, okay? But I know, I know there's the whole comforting thing, but is it, there's this thing where you just, you're so, you're so, you're, everything about you is so engaged in the thing you just heard, you don't think about anything else. You've, this is what you're thinking about. Number one. Number two, what I've learned about fasting over the years is this. I don't know much about it, but I know there are moments where I've just got to do it. I can't even give you a well-thought-out theology why. I just know now's the time. There's a desperation in the heart that grows. I've just got to get a hold of God. That's what's going on here. Something's got to change. Something, something switches in Nehemiah's heart. Something's got, this isn't good enough. Something has to change. This isn't good enough that the city of God should be in this state. It's good to say that. It's good to carry that. It's good, it's good if you come across things in the church, you think this lacks God. This lacks the life of God. This lacks freedom. This lacks passion. 
This lacks joy. This lacks kind of light heart, light hearted, you know. This lacks, this lacks love. This lacks kindness. Do you, at that point, to say, this isn't good enough, that's a good thing to say. And say, God, you've got, you got to change this. He fasts. And then he prays. He prays and he confesses. He confesses. He confesses his own sin. He confesses the sin of his people. He's just confessing. He just wants to bring everything before God. And even, oh, those, okay. But if they're not even going to confess this, then I'll confess it for them. You know, I don't want to make a formula out of that, but sometimes, you know, you're just so desperate before God. You just want to say, God, please forgive us. And I know that some people aren't, aren't going to pray that, so I'll pray it for them. Please just be moved by my heart. There's just this longing and desire here. He cared about the purposes of God, and he knew that the purposes of God are tied up in the city of God. This is what's going on here. Do you care? Do you care? Myself, Richard and Simon do not want to be part of a church where we're constantly trying to get people interested. That's not it. That's not it. And we're not going to spend our life chasing people around trying to get you motivated. This new covenant church, the idea is, is that all of us are filled with the Spirit. All of us have access to the presence of God. You don't get to God through me. You get to God through Jesus. We all have access to God. We, all have, we, all, we are all promised the Holy Spirit in these last days. And that together, as we gather, there's justice rising up to God. That's the church. That's the church. It's not a pyramid structure. We're brothers and sisters all together. We all play different roles, but we're all brothers and sisters in it together, filled with the Spirit for the glory of God. That's the church. We care about that. We care about that. Deeply, deeply care about that. And finally, Nehemiah understood. He understood. He wasn't just a guy of passion. He understood. He got his doctrine right. He understood this. He understood that God's fame and God's reputation hung on the state of his city. That if the city of God was in disrepair, then God's fame was in disrepair. Because people would look on and think, well, these were meant to be the guys that kind of had this, the God of heaven and earth. We've got the God of silver. These guys, this nation over here, they've got the God of war. These ones, these guys, they said they had the God of heaven and earth. Look at the, but look at the state of the place. You see what's happening? They're looking at the city of God and they're making assumption after assumption about the God who claims to own that city. He can't really be the God of heaven and earth. Surely he can't. He, this, 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 the state of the church, God's reputation hangs on it. It's, it's, it's almost quite a dangerous policy, isn't it? That God would make it so that his reputation, his glory and his fame would hang on the state of his church. When one is ruined, both are ruined. Now, there's an outsider's explanation. They would say, well, yeah, it can be helped. You know, the Babylonians came along and they, they were the biggest power at the time. And Jerusalem was a small power. So they just kind of overtook it. That's really what happened. That's the outsider's explanation. The insiders, no, that's not what happened at all. That isn't, that, on, the, on one layer that's true, that really wasn't what was going on though, deep down. Here is really what was happening. God's people had stopped caring. The Israelites had stopped caring. They'd stopped caring about God. They'd stopped caring about God's reputation. They'd stopped caring about God's glory. They'd stopped caring about their own identity. They'd stopped caring about their own destiny. They, and, and they'd started caring about other things. What they wanted was assimilation with other nations. 
They wanted to just be like the others. It started with the desire for the king. We want a king. God's saying, I'm your king. No, no, no. We want like a real king because the other nations have got one. That's how it started. And then it moved from that to we want your gods. We want your gods. And in the end, they were sacrificing their children to Molech. They started worshipping Molech, one of the gods of the other nations. And then temple prostitution started because, well, that's what these guys do when they worship their god. So we'll do that. Oh, and these ones, they, they have these gold statues. Oh, we'll do that. And it went into full-scale spiritual adultery. And God warned them and warned them and brought judgment. They repented, got back into it. God warned them and warned them. And then he brought judgment. They repented. And they kept going. And got, in the end, God said, if you carry on, I am going to break down my city and I'm going I'm to cast you all out. And they carried on. And so the reason why Jerusalem was in the disrepair that it was, was that it was God's judgment. Because his people had stopped caring. God's people were the problem, and God's people were the solution. And they always are. That's how it works. That's how God has decreed it. The UK needs a church that is filled with the fullness of God. The UK is increasingly interested in spiritual things, but not interested in Christianity or the church. And in the main, it's the fault of the church. In the main. Because the church has not been filled to the fullness of God. We've skirted on, we've skirted on the edges. We've been superficial. We've been shallow. We've cared more about assimilating and being like everyone else than we have about loving everyone else, but being like Christ. And as a result, the mentality, the whole psyche of the nation has kind of established this structure of cynicism and suspicion towards the church. Now, praise God, in the last few decades, numbers of churches and movements and streams have been coming through that look, look, a, look a bit more like they're filled with life and a bit more like the whole body of Christ moving together and it's organic, it's real, it's authentic, it's relational, it's, it's all the good stuff. And um, we want to we be in that. We want to be in that move of God, don't we? We want to, for the sake of the nation, for the sake of the glory of Christ in the nation, where we're not holding on to things that don't need to be held on to, but, and we are holding on to things that do. Whereas very often we hold on to things that don't need to be held on to and let go of things that we mustn't let go of. We've got to do it the right way. We hold on to the gospel. We hold on to the Bible. We hold on to the place of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. We hold on to meaningful relationships with one another. We hold on to order in the church and the way God has laid it out. We hold on to those things. But we don't hold on to sandals, as an example. Unless it's hot. You know, we don't hold on to things that have become associated with, with, with Christianity that really have nothing to do with it. Um, so, some examples. Sandals. Um, <laughs> Music that is uh, uncreative and, um, and ref- refuses, to, refuses to move with the times. There's nothing spiritual about that. It doesn't have any virtue, virtue to it. Um, praying in strange voices and old English. We're not going to do that. There's nothing godly or special or spiritual about praying in old English or in strange voices. Um, Not going, not going to places where people are that need to hear about Jesus. We're not, we're not going to stay away from places where people need to hear about Jesus. We're going to go to those places and shine our light. 
That's what we're being called to do. We've got, we've got to, this is really, really important stuff. We've got to understand that, we, that by God's grace and by God's wisdom, we are the solution. The church is the solution. So, what I want to do now in these last few minutes is literally just, I'm going to read through, I've just been meditating on a brief look at our own history as a church, where God has brought us from. I'm just going to read through that. It's like an A4 side. Then we're going to end on this final sentence in chapter 1. So what's happened in the last five or six years since we've been here? Well, there are some great churches in this area, but it's not known for that. Because, because as, well as, as well as the good, great, healthy churches that are here, there's also been a real lack of healthy, vibrant churches that have stayed the course, that have stayed together, and that have seen a harvest. Leaders have run away. Churches have disassembled. Money's, money's been misused. It's just over six years since 12 adults and five kids moved here to establish a church, Revelation Church. God has blessed us more than tenfold, and I think we should be in good heart. Apart from the 1,001 secret acts of kindness, boldness, generosity, compassion, authenticity, and courage that will only be made known on the final day, here are some of the things we do know. We're committed to loving one another, supporting each other, standing with one another, and being a blessing and source of life to one another. This is the bottom line, and that will remain. Countless people have heard about Jesus by the simple fact that we have moved to the area and shared our faith in everyday life. We've seen numbers of people completely turned around by Christ. People who didn't know Jesus, not just knowing him now, but carrying responsibility in society and in the church, leading and serving others. As an example, Emma O'Toole, now planting a church with her husband, Tom, in Manchester. We've seen many people come along limping through life with Jesus, healed up, often baptised, and then put back on track, running freely and happily with Jesus. We've seen people rescued from spiritual oppression in the areas of sexual lust, destructive negativity, bitterness and unforgiveness. We've established brilliant relationships with the other churches in the area. The pastors meet in regularly for prayer and fellowship. It's always been our desire to practically express God's compassion towards those who are in positions of vulnerability and poverty. We've been able to establish a fund for people in the church who suffer financial crises. We have a CAP centre through which we've helped over 30 people in the last two years walk free from crippling debt. And we have a growing food bank where in the last five months we've fed 70 local people and counting who are on the breadline, as well as establishing friendships and sharing the good news of Jesus. By God's grace, we're beginning to see more and more people touched physically by Jesus and healed in their bodies. It's an area of growth and development. We don't have all the answers, but among our number, there are people who could instantly testify to remarkable physical healing through faith in his name. One sign historically of God moving among his people is new and fresh songs, and we've been so blessed to see from among us a growing range of truly brilliant worship songs that help us soak in the truth of the gospel and express our adoration to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Through gospel communities, we've enabled Regular incarnational mission across the church, whether it's to local estates, prisons, the hungry, asylum seekers, international students, etc. Through twos and threes, we've enabled accountability, sharpening and encouragement, and regular prayer for our friends who don't yet know Christ. We've launched a Sunday kids' club for local 8 to 12 year olds, and that is growing and developing with regular guests from those outside the church, hearing the gospel, having loads of fun, and even being healed. We've intentionally sent the Riley family to Poland to plant a church, Matt Med to Riga in Latvia to plant a church, and Esther to Central Asia to work with an NGO and share Jesus. We've supported all three with friendship, finance, and prayer. We've sent many others on short mission trips abroad. We're devoted to seeking God in prayer, corporately, every week together in the early morning and every other month in the evening at our Ignite prayer meeting. We are devoted to breaking bread every Sunday, coming back to the cross and remembering the source of our life, which is his death. 
We are devoted to one another in organised and organic ways, bearing burdens, sharing joy and pain. We are devoted to biblical truth, opening the Bible and preaching from Scripture every week corporately. We're grappling with what it means to be caught up on apostolic mission, joined relationally with Mike Betts and his team, believing that the apostolic grace on him will enlarge and help us connect more meaningfully with the move of God way bigger than our local setting. And we're raising up leaders, making disciples, serving the disadvantaged, learning how to heal the sick and preaching the good news. We've got a lot to learn and we make our mistakes, but we've got a heck of a lot to be thankful for. Amen? Amen. Praise God. It's quite rare that we would go for an inventory like that because my mind is a scrambled egg. And so I don't really think systematically like that. So I made myself sit down and think it through. It's the blessing and curse of being a creative um, is that you just, you're always full of new ideas but forget what you've actually done. So there we go. Praise God. It's all by his grace and by the gifts of faith that he's given us. I want to end with this sentence. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. <laughs> Nehemiah is a type of Christ. Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Nehemiah goes to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. It points us towards what Jesus is doing. It points us towards, and there are two elements that I want us to I want to point us to where, where this one sentence here shows us Jesus. I was cupbearer to the king. Jesus, um, Nehemiah had close access to the king. He was in a privileged position which is, as we read the story later, we'll find was a key thing in terms of the whole project. Jesus is the only man to have ever lived his life in perfect relationship with the heavenly king. He's the only man to have been free from the curse of sin, although he willingly took that curse on at the cross, that through his life he was free from the curse of sin and lived in perfect fellowship with his father. Every prayer of Jesus will be answered. Every work of Jesus will be successful. Why? Because he has this access to his Father. Because he's fully intertwined in the perfect will of the Father. He said, I'll say nothing unless I've heard it from the Father. And he said, I will build my church. He said, I do nothing unless I see my Father doing it. And what does he do? He gathers 12. And he builds foundations with them. And they're a cranky bunch. But he loves them. And he builds foundations with them. And then he leaves them. And then he pours his spirit out on them. And within a hundred years, they've, they've turned the whole world upside down. Jesus has perfect access to the Father. After his death and resurrection, he, he ascended back to be at the right hand of the Father. He intercedes for us. How can we fail? He's praying for us. He's praying for you. If you're a believer, he's praying. He's interceding for you at the right hand of the Father. So be comforted that your Jesus has perfect access to, the heaven, to his heavenly Father. It's a picture of that we see in Nehemiah. And secondly, do you know the job of the cupbearer? It wasn't just, it seems, it wasn't just to give the king the wine. It was to dip the hand in the wine and taste it first to make sure it wasn't poisoned. What a job. What a flipping job. Every day you're taking your life in your hands. You have to have something of a Geronimo spirit to have that job, don't you? Something of the, all right, here I go. It's Jesus all over. Come to die. And I'm calling people to come and die with me. That's the calling. I'm calling you to come and die with me. 
I'm also going to be raised from the dead and I'm calling you into resurrection life. But it's the death, that's the pattern of the Christian life. Death, resurrection, death, resurrection. That's how it works. Come die with me, not come dine with me. That's, that's the call. That's the call. It's the call of Christ. It's the call of Christ. Every day his life was in his hands. He was, he was harassed. He was hounded. He was intimidated. He was finally apprehended and condemned. And he predicted all of it. And he came to do it. Why? So that he could, he could take our sins in his body. What a king. What a saviour. What a hero. I mean, Nehemiah is a great leader. You, <laughs> you, man alive, you should be glad he's not your pastor. He, <laughs> he was fierce. He was a mighty leader. A might, but he's just a shadow. The substance, as ever, is Christ. Is Christ. And through this series, God is going to call us. In a, I believe God's going to call us corporately into his mission in a fresh way. And his mission is the glory of the church for the sake of the world. It's not just the glory of the church, it's the glory of the church for the sake of the world. I want to end with this, it's controversial, but I want to end with it anyway. Because I want to get it into your heads. Some of you believe in election, some of you don't. Election is the doctrine that God, God elects some for salvation. It's not been argued about for centuries. Um, things, that, things that are argued about for centuries by good godly people aren't straightforward. Okay? I'm not going to unpack it now, but I do want to say this about election. If you look at the Old Testament, Israel were God's elect people. But, but they were elected for what? They were elected for the unelect. They were elected for the sake of the nations. They were, so even if you believe in election, you are elected for the unelect. You are elected so that, those, so that the unelect come to know Christ. I can't explain that. And I'm not even going to try. But if you believe in election, I want to say don't let it, don't let it become a weird thing in your head. Well, well, you just don't kind of think it's just some kind of, oh, well, kind of I'm elect, so it's, it's all cool. Man, you carry incredible responsibility. You are privileged. You are privileged. And God has called us individually, <coughs> but corporately to shine with his glory. And over these coming weeks, I believe he's going to reveal some beautiful things for us as we look at this story of Nehemiah. Amen?